This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. You also want to lay out your cards slowly. And the key thing is, is to understand what the employer wants. If they love you, they don't want to lose you. However, they can't keep you if you don't want to stay. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we are going to do two things. First, we are going to answer a question from the Marriage, Kids, and Money community about how to negotiate a severance package when you resign. And second, we are going to feature a true net worth winner today, Andy LeBlanc. He's going to share how he achieved a million dollar net worth by age 41. All right, let's jump into today's show. I received a question from Joe from Michigan via email at Andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com if you guys want to send me over a question as well. And here it is. Hi, Andy. I have a question about exit strategy from the corporate world. I'm nearing financial independence and would like to leave my corporate job this year, but I just don't want to leave empty handed. I've been with the company for over 20 years and know that if I were laid off, I would probably receive a full year worth of salary as severance, as well as health insurance benefits for some period of time. Most of the advice I've seen regarding exit strategy is for someone who's unhappy at their job or not performing. I am a high performer and well-liked by my peers and management. Did you try to negotiate any severance package or benefits when you left your nine-to-five job? I appreciate any advice you have. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Joe. Joe, thank you so much for reaching out about your awesome situation and congratulations on nearing financial independence. That is awesome news. You have to be, I just feel it really good right now. And you're probably wanting to make sure you do it right. So you reached out, you asked me, but unfortunately I'm not the best example of how to engineer your layoff to get a quality severance because man, all I got and all I requested really was my work MacBook pro. So, (laughs) but I do know someone who not only got a great severage package after leaving his job, but he now helps countless others do the same. So Sam Dogan is here with me to help you answer this question today, Joe. Sam is the writer behind Financial Samurai, a blog and podcast dedicated to slicing through money's mysteries. And I've been lucky to have Sam on the show twice before. Our episode that we had early last year about how Sam makes over 200K per year as a stay-at-home dad, it's currently our top downloaded episode of all time. You guys can find that at Marriage Kids money.com slash session 173. So I'm super excited to have Sam back today. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me back again. Happy New Year, everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks for being here. Well, let's tackle Joe's question right away. What are some important steps that he could be taking as he's leading into this time where he's going to resign? Well, first of all, Joe, I want to congratulate you for a 20 plus year career. And it's Awesome. It's awesome that you're thinking about negotiating a severance instead of quitting. 
because a baby panda dies in the woods every time someone quits their job. It is so much more efficient, so much more profitable to try to negotiate a severance. Think about it. If you're going to quit your job anyway, there is no downside to trying to negotiate a severance. Zero whatsoever. So the first thing you want to do is make sure you're in good standing with your immediate supervisor, your colleague, and your HR manager. You want to have a good dialogue, a good relationship with them. You know, any kind of past, uh, you know, tiffs, try to work them out. Make sure things are good for at least one or two months before you start negotiating that severance. The second thing you want to do is understand what the history of severances have been at your employer. Since you've been there for 20 years, I'm sure there's been layoffs before. Large employers are required to notify their state for a mass layoff, and therefore there will be severances in that regard. So you want to develop a baseline for what that historical severance amount is. In general, severances are one to three weeks per year worked. So since you've worked for 20 years, that's 20 to 60 weeks. That is a reasonable severance amount. And then you've got to think about if you have any deferred compensation in terms of stock and cash mostly. And so once you add up all those numbers, that really is your potential severance amount. And then that is when you have to start negotiating. So one of the issues people you know, ask me all the time is, well, I'm a great employee. How am I going to be able to negotiate a severance? Why would they want to give me a severance for letting me go? That's that's a fair question because most most people think, well, I'm just an average employee or a sub-performing employee. Surely they'd be more willing to give me a severance. Well, you got to flip it on the head a little bit and think about if you're a good, high-performing employee, one, they want to respect you. You probably have developed a great relationship over time. 20 years at one place has garnered a lot of respect. And so from an employer's point of view, they want to take care of the people who've been loyal to them. And 20 years is by far, I would say that's like a top 3% dedication, maybe top 1% dedication, because everybody's you know, switching jobs every one to three years nowadays. And so given you have that duration of time, it's going to be much easier to have that open dialogue with your employer. They're going to want to take care of you. They also want to develop a reputation for taking care of their employees, because they know that no employee is going to last at one place forever. And so when other prospective employees who, want, who they want to recruit find out, hey, you know, they really took care of Joe and other employees who've been there for many years, it's going to develop a positive relationship going forward. And that's going to be good for business. That makes a lot of sense, Sam, when you break it down like that. I mean, I was thinking on the side of the employer as you're describing this. In my situation, I'm like, why would they want to give me any money? I'm leaving. They, they like me as an employee. I make a lot of money for them now, but I'm leaving. What good am I when I'm gone? But the way you're breaking it down is, you know, reputation, respect, and for prospective employees that might be coming there in the future. Is that right? Reputation now is everything. If you think about how easily reputations can be ruined online thanks to social media, you know, you write a post, you you submit an op-ed piece in the New York Times. It can really damage a company's share price, reputation, recruiting efforts, and so forth. And so at the end of the day, companies, especially companies who've been around for, for years, decades, they have a reputation to protect. And it's just money for them. It's an expense item, right? Giving a severance to a loyal employee. And we have, when you have bad press, it could really hurt profitability going forward. 
like you said in the beginning, what is the absolute worst that could happen? They could say no. And I guess the best thing that could happen is that you get all of these great benefits and more. So let's talk about what are the next steps that he would take. Okay, I'm doing these determinations. How does he start those conversations then as he's leading to saying goodbye? I mean, do you set up a meeting notice? Do you do you write him a letter? What is the best way to start? Oh, there's so many ways uh, to start, but I think one of the easiest ways, again, once you have your relationships down pat, you make sure everything's good. Let's say it's one, two months, you're doing a good job. Invite your local HR manager to have a coffee or a lunch or your immediate supervisor to have a coffee and lunch and talk about the future of the business. You don't really want to broadside them, but you want to be honest. And any company, so if you've ever been a manager, I was a manager for years. If you've ever run a business, I've run Financial Samurai for years. It's income and costs. So every year there are costs and every year a company or manager wants to optimize costs and income. And so in 2021, and especially after 2020, there's a lot of still a lot of uncertainty. We don't know whether corporate profits will rebound in 2021 for sure. We're all hopeful second half will be a really nice rebound. Personally, I'm forecasting, I don't know, 25 percent S&P 500 earnings growth in 2021 over the previous year. But you don't know for sure. And so if you have a good relationship with your manager or the HR person, you lay it out and you say, let's talk about the year and let's talk about the future. And you want to suggest that you want to do something else with your life. And the great thing about the pandemic is that we've all had a moment where we're thinking to ourselves, what should we do with our lives? Are we doing things that are meaningful and purposeful? Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. We see this every single day in the news. It just gets bombarded that you know, there's all these bad things happening. So I think now is actually the easiest time to bring up what's next for yourself and for the company. And you obviously, as an adult, you know how to speak to people in a social setting. But you also want to lay out your cards slowly. And the key thing is, is to understand what the employer wants If they love you, they don't want to lose you. However, they can't keep you if you don't want to stay because that brings down morale, productivity, and all that stuff. So your secret weapon is to understand what their goals are and to make sure you find a money replacement, a superstar replacement, and that you will not leave until you find that replacement and train him or her to do your job equal or better. And it's probably going to be better eventually, if not immediately, because that new person is going to be hungrier. And there's a lot of hungry people out there right now. And so I think that's how you should start and have that dialogue. I think that's a great way because you're putting yourselves in the shoes of the company saying, okay, what's going to make this as smooth as possible? Me just saying goodbye in two weeks, that's going to you know, probably not get me the severance and it's probably going to make things rough with the company. But if I say, hey, over the next couple of months or over the next period of time, I'd be happy to make this smooth transition. I think that's that sounds like it works for everybody in the end. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It's not only helping them find your replacement, especially if you've been in business like Joe has for 20 years, you know your competitors and other qualified people. It's training that person. It's giving the company, your boss, as much time as possible so that the transition is smooth. My wife, I helped my wife negotiate a severance. She was one of my biggest disbelievers (laughs) that could be done, even though I did it in 2012. And she didn't believe it because she thought she was a high-performing employee. Like, I think a lot of people think they're high-performing employees. And we were able to work it out so that she was able to go to work 
two or three days a week at full pay for several months. I think it was like five months, right? So that's kind of like getting a raise. Or you can treat that full income, even though you're only working two or three days a week, as part of your severance, right? There's many ways to think about negotiating a severance. But once she came up with the deadline that she wanted to leave for good, then they also agreed to give her several months of severance and some health benefits as well. So don't think in black or white terms. Don't think two weeks notice. Actually, two weeks notice is not great if you're a high-performing employee. Your employer wants to keep you for as long as possible, right? Think about multi-month heads up to get your severance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we're talking about Joe making this transition. Let's say, you know, best case scenario, he's got 60 weeks of pay and some health benefits. After that 60 weeks, he's going to now need to live on his, as he said, he's nearing financial independence, near living on his investments. How can Joe know, or I guess anyone who's listening right now, know that they have enough to live on after leaving their corporate career? That's a great question and why it's great to take your time to negotiate a severance. So once you've determined that you want to leave, you want to then immediately pretend like you don't have income. Definitely don't count on your... Severance is just gravy money. So what you want to do is pretend like you don't have income, pretend like you are retired already, and therefore track your expenses for those couple of months and see whether your passive investment income, and any kind of supplemental side income you generate can cover that. And if you can do that, if it can, if it can happen for three months at least, I think you've got it made. Because you can obviously always draw down principal. You don't have to just live off the, the dividends or the coupon payments or the rental income or whatever type of passive income, retirement income you're generating. The severance really is just gravy on top. It, it is the catalyst that enables you to walk away from a long-term career. It was my catalyst after working at one place for 11 years and in the finance industry for 13 years. Without the severance, I probably would have gutted it out until 40, so five and a half years after I had actually left. But my severance was able to pay a lump sum check and also all my deferred stock and cash compensation over multiple years. Yeah, so that gave you a big walkway over the next three years to get used to. And then when you, I guess, used that sort of money as gravy, did you live off of dividends? Did you live off a of rental income? What did you do? Back in 2012, I calculated I had about $80,000 in steady passive income. You know, it's dividend income. I had a couple rental properties and, and so forth. And so what I did was I said, okay, can I live off $80,000 a year in gross income? And Obviously, the answer was yes. That's like 6,500 plus thousand month gross. And then my wife, who is three years younger than me, she continued to work because we made an agreement that I would go first because I'm three years older. And then in two or three years, if we're still okay, then we're going to try to negotiate a severance for her. So it was really an easy and logical one, two step move. And what I did was I got a lump sum severance check. And I actually invested all of it into the, the S&P 500. And so that was good because I, I, I thought it was like winning the lottery a little bit because actually there was a point where I thought I wouldn't get that severance check because I had accidentally sent a client file back to my personal email address as I was cleaning up all my stuff. So actually, that's something to be aware of when you're in the process or after you've negotiated your severance. 
really stick by the guidelines. And, and when you're cleaning house on your computer, your desk, make sure you follow the guidelines. But I invested my entire lump sum severance. And then what I did was I focused on doing something that I wanted to do. So what I wanted to do, obviously, was relax a little bit because I was sick of work. So I traveled with my wife. I made her take six plus weeks off a year to spend time with me. And I also focused on writing on Financial Samurai because I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, in the last one or two years of my work life, I was addicted to Financial Samurai. You know, I'd, I'd be on my phone, you know, wondering if there was a comment or, you know, after work, I'd write on Financial Samurai or something. And so I really enjoyed being able to spend a lot of my time, maybe 20, 25 hours a week writing on Financial Samurai and building a community there. So I found my passion after the severance. And once my severance finally ran out in 2017, that was kind of the real test where, quote, early retirement started because I didn't have that 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 income stream left. All I had was my retirement income and my financial summary income. And at that point, did you sort of double down on the business saying, hey, I got to make this a livable thing for my wife and I? Yeah, so it's, everything is just kind of like gradual, like inflation. In 2012, I thought 80,000 was enough to be happy. And then my wife left in 2015. So then I thought, well, $80,000 is enough for me to be happy. For her, let's just do 80,000. It was like, you know, like 150,000 for us. And then as we had a kid in 2017, we're like, well, let's let's add $50,000 for per kid. And then we had another kid in 2019. So basically that's why, and you mentioned earlier, I was talking about trying to get $200,000 in relatively passive retirement income. And, and I was really motivated not only by my kids, uh, the biggest motivation was, was my kid, was our kids. But after the 2017 tax cut and jobs act passed that got implemented in 2018, I felt, well, okay, taxes are cut. So let's just try to work a little bit harder to earn more income until taxes are raised. So it looks like taxes might be raised at the end of 2021 or 2022. So then that's when I'm going to start dialing it back. All based on the timing and how things flow in and out. So outside of the financial expectations that you had with, you know, trying to make sure you had enough money or adjusting to your lifestyle, what sort of, I guess, emotional things were you feeling in the first few days after you had engineered your layoff or the first few months? What were some of those feelings that you have that Joe might expect to feel? Oh, I think there are so many emotions especially after you do something for so long and you go into the office, well, not anymore, but some emotions you'll feel, you're going to first ask yourself, did you do the right thing? And if I didn't negotiate a severance, I would have felt really nervous. But because I negotiated the severance, it bought me time and it bought me cushion to say, you know what, if I screw things up or if I felt like I made a mistake, I'll just try to get another job within 12 months. And I think that's what Joe or anybody who negotiates a severance can do. It's kind of like, you know how, you know, like the NFL or NBA, like a coach is on a five-year contract and then he gets fired three years in. He still gets the remaining two years of the contract, even though he doesn't have to work. So if you get a severance, it's pretty cool because you get your severance and you get any kind of deferred compensation. It'll still come to you even if you find a job, let's say a month later. And so the emotions are really mixed in the beginning. Did I do the right thing? Will I have enough to survive? What am I going to do with my life? And so forth. And that identity that you gain from work is very powerful. 
it's very, you know, this is what I do for a living. And once you don't have that, you will feel, you'll probably feel a little bit depressed, a little bit lost, unless you are retiring to something, right? So I had an obsession with financial samurai during my last year of work, and which is what helped propel me to leave work and do something else. And I love it till this day. It's just so fun. I have to be careful not to spend too much time on it because I have kids. So during that severance negotiation process, let's say it's two, three months, whatever it is, figure out what you want to do. Make sure you're going to do something productive afterwards because we all need to feel productive. We all need to feel like we're contributing something. Otherwise, I think bad things are going to happen. And even as a parent, I mean, you're a young parent. If you say, well, I'm just going to put all of my time into my kids, that can also be a slippery slope too, right? Absolutely. Uh, Man, I mean, my kids are only barely four and just one. And I try to spend two hours in the morning with them, two hours in the afternoon, and one hour in the evening. So five hours. And five hours might not sound like a lot, but it's a lot when it comes to raising young kids. And it's it's funny because we've come to the conclusion after almost four years of being a dad is that spending more time with your kids is better than spending less time. It's good for their emotional well-being, health, growth, all that good stuff. But the reason why a lot of parents don't spend all day with their kids is because it's simply exhausting. It's so exhausting that, you know, think about it, you can't, it's hard to do more than two hours of something at one go. You know, you just kind of easily get distracted. You start itching to do something else. And so that's why it's the pandemic has been so hard on a lot of parents because school has been shut down. And so I would love to do more homeschooling maybe for the next 10 years and before they go to high school, but I don't know if I can make it. It's so much work. I hear that, man. Yeah, we are in the middle of it at our house too. And Joe, if he's listening to this show, he might be a parent as well. And so those things for him to think about too. So Sam, this has been very helpful. I know you wrote a book specifically on engineering your layoff. Where can people find that? Oh, you can just go to financialsamurai.com. And I think in the menu tab, there's a there's a section that says negotiate a severance. Or you can just Google how to, how to engineer your layoff. Uh, it should come up. It's. Uh, I wrote it in 2012, and I've gone through, I think, four revisions now, just incorporating a lot of feedback from people who have successfully negotiated their severance. One guy, it was crazy, he just emailed me the other day, and he said he negotiated a severance and then told like hundreds of employees what his severance was or something. And this is a big tech company, and so he calculated the combined severance negotiation was about forty million. <laughs> it was like it was like crazy. Like he's like the hero of his uh, company because he was able to talk about. He was like the severance union negotiator for hundreds of employees. It was pretty cool. And so I, I really want to encourage people who are going to quit a job they're planning on quitting anyway that they should try to negotiate. Don't be scared of having a conversation and. It's, it's interesting. I think I failed in the financial independence, retire early community at properly disseminating this advice about negotiating a severance if you're going to retire early. And I don't know exactly why it hasn't latched on because it's so logical to me. I don't know why more people haven't done so. I, Andy, let me, let me ask you why, 
how come you didn't try to negotiate a severance? You know, it's it's a fantastic question. I think for me, it boils down to, I guess, the roots of just negotiation in general. You know, when you negotiate something, it's an uncomfortable topic. And for me, I did not think about the things that we've just talked about today, the the worth that I could still provide my company in helping them to transition a new employee into my position or just generally what I have done at the company for almost 10 years, the the results that I had earned or the respect that I had probably gained. So honestly, it's it's probably just naivete as well as just maybe a little bit of not thinking that I'm worth negotiating. So I think this is a good conversation for people to have. And there are a lot of people on here who both enjoy the fire community as well as sort of the Ramsey community and everything in between. So I hope this helps a lot of people as they're listening. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who is a CEO of a company and one month he got broadsided by one of his senior executives. Senior executive said, I'm leaving and I'm going to go to another firm. And this was a difficult time of the year. And my friend was so upset that he was like, see you later. It was just so shocking the way it was conducted. So now the guy who's left, uh, his reputation is kind of tarnished, at least by his original firm. And the, the reality is, if he had negotiated a severance and said, I'm going to stay on for three months and find my replacement and all that, he would have kept over a million dollars in deferred stock compensation. I mean, the guy was, it's just, it's just such a shame that people aren't really trying to have a conversation. Don't be afraid of confrontation. I mean, I guess ghosting and, you know, breaking up over text message is, is, the, way, is, is the common way to go. No, talk to someone face-to-face on video, on the phone, spell things out. I mean, you're not going to ghost your wife or your husband, <laughs> you know? I mean, these are really important matters that have tremendous financial consequences. And it's not just financial consequences. It's being able to live the life the way you want. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to have shared this message on the podcast today. And I'm glad that you are continuing to carry the torch for this important issue for a lot of people who are making these very big decisions, especially when it comes to financial independence. So Sam, where can people listen to your podcast or or, or check out your blog? Is the best place to go for both of them at financialsamurai.com? Yeah, just go to financialsamurai.com and then just search wherever you listen to podcasts for Financial Samurai. Should be there. My wife and I will be doing some more interviews. I mean, we really do it just to kind of talk about life and to make sure that our kids can hear our voices if they decide to along in the future. So much going on. 2021, I think, is going to be, I think, a 75% chance it's going to be a profitable year for stocks and real estate. And I think it's going to be a 100% chance that we're all going to do something to make our lives better and live better lives. I love it, man. I love it. Yes. If you guys like these character conversations that Nicole and I have been having on the podcast, you'll definitely like what Sam and his wife are doing on their show. So check it out. Type in Financial Samurai in your podcast player and check it out. Sam, thank you so much for your time today, man. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Andy. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, 
developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Let's jump back into the show. I love talking about increasing your net worth. This is our barometer for wealth building success. Today, we're going to speak with someone who achieved a million dollar net worth by age 41. Andy LeBlanc is our guest today. Andy lives in Utah with his wife and four children. He's active in his church and Cub Scouts, and he loves to travel and explore the West. Welcome to the show, Andy. Cool. Andy, thanks for so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glad to have you here, Andy. I know we're in the Thriving Families Facebook community together, and I know a bit about your win, but I'm excited to dive a little deeper today and share it with everybody else who is listening today. So take me back. When did you decide that building your wealth was a good idea for you and your family? Well, I think it's always kind of been at the forefront of what we've been doing just in finances and things like that. I mean, looking back, you know, it was it was always build that emergency fund and then kind of, you know, what's the next goal and move on from there. And I think it wasn't until we got through following Dave Ramsey's baby steps, you know, we got to that last step and we realized, okay, well, everything's covered except for the mortgage, but we got such a low interest rate. You know what? Let's start investing and really kind of doubling down on that. So that was kind of really that tipping point. We realized we got some expendable cash. Let's see how, what we can do with it. Yeah. It sounds like you went through some of these steps together with your spouse. What did she think about the whole process? That was one of the great things before we even got engaged, we went through pre-engagement counseling and, you know, a series of questions and all these things that we did. And we were, that was one thing we were really on the same page with was our finances. So that's always been a really, really solid thing between me and my wife is, uh, you know, we've got a same mind for how to spend money, for how to save money, you know, what our priorities are in spending. So that's really been a plus to allowing us to build this wealth. 
Yeah, that's a really good point about having these conversations before you get married. I I remember when Nicole and I met, I was just like, man, this woman is beautiful. What can I do to marry her as soon as possible and rush to the altar? But obviously, it's very important to have some of these conversations. So yes, we did the premarital counseling as well, and that helped us to discover some things together before we got married. So highly recommend that for a lot of people who are listening and considering getting married. So what did you and your wife do for income during this wealth building journey? I I have an electrical engineering degree. And when I graduated from school, I joined the Air Force. And so I was an officer for a few years making, you know, maybe like 36,000, not a lot. And, you know, initially starting out, I was opening up my Roth IRA right off the bat, investing in that, making sure I was saving up front. But then over the years, you know, I, I left the active duty. I joined the civilian side. So I'm still a civilian with the Air Force government employee, not making a ton of money by a lot of other standards, especially in engineering. But enough, you know, we're able to cover expenses and we're able to we're able to have fun. My wife was a teacher. And so she taught for a couple of years before we got married. She taught for a couple of years after we got married. And now she's been a full time full time stay at home mom taking care of our four kids. And so that's what we did. I mean, we she did that. I did my engineering. And just as salaries have risen over the years, we just were able to kind of funnel that money into other areas. So, Okay, that makes sense. So as salaries rose in your lives, you guys had more opportunities. So did you continue to live your typical lifestyle? How did that all work? Fairly similar. We both like just getting outside and doing stuff. So the activities that we're involved in really don't require a ton of money. Or if they do, it's like in gear. And gear you can kind of use ad nauseum till you know you wear it out. And there's always points where you want to upgrade things like that. You know, we I bought a house before we got married. I had roommates, so I was kind of house hacking that way, doubling down on paying. You know, I made 15-year payments on the 30-year note. So by the time we got married, her entire salary was basically going into savings. She had very little debt and school loans and, and a car loans. So we were able to pay that off almost immediately. So all of our income really went into savings, you know, every, all the extra income. And so over the years, you know, we, we upgraded a house back in 2012 when the housing market bottomed out. I think I lost a ton of money on my first house because I bought it in 06, but hey, that's how it goes. And I made up for it because we got double the size of the house for not very much more. And it's probably appreciated almost double since we bought it. So Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you guys are living below your means and you're investing and having some fun along the way. So talk to me about the investment side of things. It sounds like you guys got into a Roth IRA. Were there other forms of investments you did as well? So so like I said, I graduated college in 2003, immediately opened my Roth because my parents told me to. I have to attribute a lot to them. You know, everything I've learned in terms of fiscal responsibility came from them. They were really good about paying off their house early and stuff like that. I mean, back in the 80s when they had double digit interest rates, they still paid off their house early. But they helped out a lot. They covered my college, so I didn't have to have that debt burdened on myself. They gave me and my brother both some seed money to be able to cover our first homes, at least getting that initial down payment. So that kind of set the stage. So we started. I started my Roth IRA out of out of school. Made sure I was maxing that out, and then that was the first thing I did. And then I, you know, would go and go on and pay my other bills and do other things. And as really as we've kind of gone along and life has changed, you know, we got married. My my wife got I got a Roth IRA for her as a government employee. I've got my thrift savings plan, so I made sure I was getting that five percent, so that I'd get the matching. As my salary increased, I was upping that percentage as well. As soon as they opened up the Roth TSP, I moved all of my contributions over into that side of the house. So really it's been learning tips and tricks along the way and trying to weave those in through most of our, you know, most of our long-term investments are really just in 
broad-based index funds. We try to keep it simple. You know, I don't even, I've, I haven't even gone with the age-based yet because um, I'm just still young enough that I'm letting the market ride. So, and it's been riding for quite a while, you know, current circumstances notwithstanding. But yeah, it's, that's really what it's been. And every time, I, every time I figure out a new method or a new way to kind of, hey, I can invest my money here, like HSAs, we just moved into a, a high deductible healthcare plan last year. And said, hey, you know, we, we want to use this as an avenue. It's triple tax advantage. That's great. We've got some extra money. Let's do it. All of my kids have 529s just because college is a big thing with us. I've got a couple of master's degrees. My wife's going back to get her master's degree. So we've got some money in a 529 for her. So, you know, those kind of avenues that, that we can really maximize what our money can do for us. Those are the things that we look for. And as, as life kind of moves along, that's when we start adopting those things. So it wasn't like a upfront, let's do all these things right at once. And then we're going to be set for the rest of the time. You know, it's, you're learning, you're constantly learning. And, and every time you learn something new, it's being able to incorporate that and allow it to become part of your portfolio. So you mentioned index funds. Can you tell me why you chose that as your investment path and maybe why others might choose it as well? I don't have the inclination or the time to, to look at specific stocks and, and read articles and understand what's going on. And, and, and as many of your listeners probably know, I mean, just on the whole, the market is going to go up. I, I think a lot of the, you know, guys like Warren Buffett are really big on that. And, and, you know, you've seen the, the data to show that, you know, an index 500 or a total stock market index fund, it's just going to grow. And if, you know, if one thing's growing, if tech grows, but say, you know, like we've seen lately, tech grew, but, you know, hospitality didn't. Well, the market still kind of went up because tech was growing. So you kind of mitigate a lot of risk by doing that. And and I'm very, even though almost all my investments are in stocks, I'm still fairly risk averse. And so going for specific stocks, going for specific types of investments, I'm not too big on. I don't like to have to think about it a ton. I just like to be able to check up on it to make sure it's doing good. And so that's that's really the methodology behind it. Yeah. Keeping it simple, keeping it easy. It makes sense. Just doing it over time. So, you know, you've gotten to this level now, a million dollar net worth. What do you think the trick is? Is it just being patient? What do you think? That's the biggest thing. There's intentionality behind it. You know, you don't become financially independent and, and not that I am, but you don't become financially independent overnight and by accident. You know, it takes some intentionality, kind of like I said, upfront, you know, making sure that I was investing in my in my Roth IRA upfront, making sure that there, I'm getting that matching with my TSP. And so, you know, we 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 attend church, we give there as well. And so a lot of the things that we do up front, along with, you know, giving a charity, investing, those things, saving always happens up front and then spending can happen later. And so I think those kind of practices and then really cultivating a lifestyle where I don't need the latest this or that or whatever, you know, we used, we buy used cars. We, we've, you know, bought an older home. You know, we've, there's a lot of things we buy used gear. My wife just came back from the thrift store with $8 skis for our kids. So, I mean, they're, they're all going to be on the mountain this year and it cost us maybe 50 bucks. So, I mean, those are the things that's, that's kind of how we do it. And that's how the wealth builds over time is by using those practices, keeping them up, you know, as circumstances change in your life as maybe more money comes in because you've changed jobs or because you've gotten a raise or whatever it is, you know, knowing, hey, I don't need more. Yeah, I can treat myself here and there. I can have a little this or that kind of celebrate, but I don't need to have the next big house. I don't need to have the next big car. I don't need to buy a Tesla, you know, when I can get a guy with a Toyota, especially when I'm not driving as much these days. So that's really kind of what it is, is the long term of making sure you're doing the right things up front. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it, man. This is great. Well, you mentioned Tesla and I was always kind of, you know, hitting myself on the side being like, oh man, I should have bought that stock 10 years ago. But now they're automatically a part of the S&P 500. So being an index fund uh, investor, now we're all owners, right? So you mentioned that your parents helped you a lot in your youth to understand, you know, financial education and get that Roth IRA going for you. Now that you are a father, is that something that you are planning to do for your children as well? It is. It is. I mean, I still, our oldest is nine and our youngest is two. So they're still really young. You know, we're, we, we haven't got to the point where we're really doing like a, like an allowance or, you know, we've been doing some money for jobs, depending on what it is. So we're, we're teaching them the concepts of it. And so then when they, you know, when they, lose teeth or something like that, they'll get, you know, a couple of dollars here and there and we'll go let them go to the dollar store and do that. But yeah, we're, I'm, I'm still learning in that, in that realm. I mean, we haven't gotten to a system where it's like, yes, this is how it's going to work and they're going to be you know, set for life. You know, it's, it's really just kind of been, you know, when the, when the moment presents itself, let's maximize this and use it as a teaching moment, but they're kids. Let's, let's let them have fun and, and kind of live in that innocence of life for a while. I love that, man. It's a really good point. And, you know, they're watching you do what you're doing as well. So you you talked about putting giving and investing as a top priority in your life. I think that example will trickle down to your children as well as they start to, you know, think about further progress in their financial journey. You know, some people, as they're listening to this, you know, they're looking for those little minutia details that might help them on their journey. Do you have any favorite fintech tools or financial hacks or anything like that that might help people on their journey towards a million? You know, I don't know if it's because I'm an engineer or I'm just old school. I do not use any apps for anything. I mean, I've got some banking apps, but I've got spreadsheets, man. And I love my spreadsheets. Like I, I took, so a long time ago, I took the the Dave Ramsey example budget that he uses in a, in a financial piece. And I modified that in a spreadsheet. I put a bunch of formulas in there. And so, like, you know, when I'm, when we have all these categories for long-term spending, like, Hey, I'm saving up for, you know, my car taxes, or I'm saving up for uh, the dentist or things like that. Like I budget those little line items every month. And it just goes in and it saves it. And I can see exactly what that is. It's one big savings account. You know, it's just a one big pot of money, but I've divided it up and I keep track of it. And so really that's, that's how I, that's how I roll. I mean, I'm sure there's benefits to using, you know, YNAB or some of those other ones that are out there, but you know, I've got a system, I know it, you know, I know how it works and I keep track. So, you know, every month, I log into all my accounts. I pull down all my account info. I'm able to see exactly where, you know, things are. I get all the statements and everything. So yeah, it's probably a lot of overhead and I'm sure someone solved this problem a long time ago, but I'm kind of set in my ways in that way. So, Hey, if it's not broken, you don't need to fix it. Right. <laughs> so you guys are young. You're in your early forties and you said your uh, wife's in her late thirties as well. So what dreams, what goals do you have now? You're at this point in your life and you've hit such a big milestone. Where do you guys go from here? So the big one has been always been paying off the house. You know, like I said, we bought back about eight years ago. We've got a low interest rate. And so, you know, I kind of came to that, can, you know, that decision point about, about two years ago and said, okay, do we, do we keep paying down principal and try to get rid of this thing? Because that would free up so much money to be able to do other stuff. And after, after listening to your show, after listening to a few other podcasts and, that I listened to, you know, I said, well, let's, let's see if the market will help us with this. And so, you know, I went and opened up a brokerage account and said, let's just start funneling money in there. And because the market's probably getting better than the three point three and a half percent that my house is going to you know, lock it in at. So we started doing that. 
really even before that, we were looking at, hey, let's, what about an investment property? I think, you know, we, we kind of talked about it and I know it was around the same time that you and Nicole were kind of discussing it as well. And we kind of came to that same conclusion. We're like, that's a lot of time and a lot of, you know, a lot of effort that I'd rather be doing something with my kids or I'd rather be, you know, going out and exploring. And so, so definitely paying down the house, maybe that investment property after that, we'll see once we free up that stuff. But I mean, we went two years ago, we got a pop-up camper for like 2,200, you know, an old, an old pop. Yes. Before everyone wanted one, I, I, I probably could have flipped that thing for double what I paid for it easily in the last few months, but it's been amazing because it's, it's allowed us to take all four kids camping. We can just throw it all in there and go out. And so, you know, having that flexibility is kind of the big thing for us. We want, you know, we want to be able to free up that money by paying down the house to have options. We, we just want to have options. We want to know, okay, hey, if we want to do this, we can do it. If we want to do that, we can do it. You know, we've recently gotten into the credit card points game and started doing that. We're planning a trip to Disney in January, all on points. This probably be the wrong time to do it, but from what I hear, the lines are really short down there right now. So I'm sure they are. Well, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed with the vaccine and everything, you guys will be able to take advantage of that this year. So there's some folks listening right now, Andy, and they are thinking, man, I would love to be a millionaire. What do you think the first step they should take after finishing this interview? I go back to that thing about being intentional. You need to be intentional with your money. You know, most people are somewhat intentional with their time. But again, no one just kind of accidentally becomes a millionaire. You really need to make sure that you understand where your money's going, have your budget, you know, follow it. And, and if you're not going to follow it, don't, don't cheat yourself. Don't lie to yourself. You know, change your budget. It's okay. You can do that. There's freedom to be able to do that and know, hey, I'm not very good in this area. So maybe I need to budget a little bit more to it and put something somewhere else. Also seeking accountability, making sure that there are other people along this journey with you. I think that's a big thing for me. I found a couple of people in my life that are, that are kind of also like-minded with me. And so, you know, we're sharing successes, we're sharing tips and tricks and things like that. So if you're really wanting to kind of make the changes in your life that you need to in order to be able to, you know, make big gains, don't, you know, open yourself up so you can, so you can get some more ideas and, and open your story up to people. I think is a big thing too. If you're, you know, if you're kind of closed, like I'm not going to let anyone know what's going on in my life or, you know, what my financial situation is, you know, it's okay to be able to share those things, especially with, you know, with safe people that, you know, you, you know, and trust. And so having that, those are probably the couple of big things that I would say. Well, Andy, this is a great example of how to get this done. And we're really glad you're here today. It's not about any wild tricks. It's about patience, time, consistency in the market and keeping things simple. So thank you very much for being here. If people have any questions, any follow-up questions, can they do that in our Thriving Families Facebook community? Sure. Yeah. You can find me in there. You can either send me a private message or just tag me in your post and I'd love to respond. Yeah, everybody. The Thriving Families Facebook community is all about helping each other thrive. We got about a thousand family members in there. Now it's what we're calling each other family members. That's the goal is to share our wins, to give advice to other families who are working hard on their financial journey and help them thrive. So if you are interested, you can go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. Again, this is a free community on Facebook. And again, we're helping people thrive and you can learn from this Andy and this Andy as well about how to get to your goals. So Andy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me on.
negotiating a severance to enjoy your financial independence, and hitting a million-dollar net worth. These are huge milestones on the financial independence journey. These may seem like far-off, distant dreams and pipe dreams. That's okay. Those dreams, though, can keep you pushing forward. So pay off that high-interest credit card, build up that emergency fund, or work on increasing your income, because in due time you'll be experiencing your own financial dreams as well. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I want to let you know that I put together a free video resource called Pay Off Your Mortgage in 10 Simple Steps. You can get this video resource for free at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash free gift. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash free gift. Once you do that, you're going to be added to the Marriage Kids and Money community email. This is a bi-weekly email that I send with tips, inspiration, and guidance for your financial independence journey. And if you don't find any value in it, you can just unsubscribe at any time. I I do that periodically, too. If there's emails that I don't find value in, I unsubscribe them. But hopefully, I'm providing value, and you guys keep it rocking. So again, you can find that free video resource at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash free gift. I hope it helps you on your journey. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, my son Calvin is going to end the show with a quote today from Stephen Covey. Begin with the end in mind. Hey, everybody, decide your big long-term goals and start making progress today. Carpe diem!